Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and, and a very warm welcome to the College's McGovern Lecture for 2014. The McGovern Lectures were endowed by a long-term friend and benefactor of the College, the late Dr. John McGovern from Houston, Texas. In addition to his many other acts of generosity to Green College, Dr. McGovern made provision for an annual lecture in his name, and I quote, on a topic in the history of medicine. The college's academic committee has invited a scholar from Europe or the United States to deliver the lecture, usually in alternate years, and we've been seeking to cover the full scope of the history of medicine. In 2012, we had a special lecture to celebrate what would have been the 100th birthday of Sir Richard Dole, and college fellow Sir Richard Pito gave a wonderful lecture in his memory on halving premature death. That lecture is still a huge hit on the college's series of podcasts. Last year's lecture, which many of you will remember, was given by Professor Christoph Gradman of the Oslo Institute of Health and Society. Tonight, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Bryant Boutwell to del deliver the 14th lecture. Dr. Boutwell is a very distinguished public health doctor, educator, commentator, and senior medical administrator who has served the University of Texas at Houston Medical Center for very nearly 40 years. He is also a highly renowned author, and I note that his first degree, in fact, was in journalism. This year, he published his biographical study of John P. McGovern, MD, and we were delighted to welcome him and his family to the college when we hosted part of the annual conference of the American Osler Society. That biography will form the background to, to, to tonight's lecture on John P. McGovern and his Oxford connection, a biographer's perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Bryant Babler. Thank you. It's a thrill to be here. Uh, I want to thank... Uh, David Watson. I want to thank the faculty, the staff, the students for inviting me to here today. And then I want to thank you again for April uh, when the American Osler Society, the London Club, the uh, Osler Club of London and uh, Japanese Osler Society were all here at the McDonald and we had a beautiful dinner uh, here on this campus and uh, the Oslerians are still talking about it. I have to thank so many people. There's several here in this room that helped organize that uh, in addition to that wonderful dinner. So uh, thank you very, very much. And it's an honor. You probably can tell from my accent I'm not from around here. Um, I was born in uh, Mississippi, southern United States. And uh, since I was about this tall, I wanted to be a writer. And that's what I became. And you know, if you are from Mississippi and a writer, there's a genetic predisposition to being a storyteller. And uh, so that's where I came into writing stories. And as you just heard, I went to the University of Texas and majored in in journalism and biology, because I wanted to be a science writer, I decided that's what I really was interested in, and came to the Texas Medical Center, where actually the first president of MD Anderson Cancer Center, Lee Clark, hired me to be his science writer. And he immediately told me, go back to school. And I said, why? And he said, well, uh, you're going to tell the media what significant research is around here. You need to know what a p-value is. And I said, what's a p-value? And he said, that's why you're going back to school. And so I went back to the School of Public Health and got a master's and, and doctorate. And the other thing he told me was collect the stories. So for 40 years, I've been collecting the stories. And tonight, we're going to be talking about John P. McGovern, who was my friend and my mentor. And I'll talk about how I came to know Dr. McGovern. But there's actually three stories here that we have to cover. There is the story of John P. McGovern and his life. And then there is the story of Osler McGovern Center, well, McGovern was born in 1921, and Osler died in 1919, so what's the connection? There is a connection. We need to cover that, connect that dot. And then we need to talk about this Texas Medical Center in Houston. It's like a giant magnet in the, in the 40s and 50s. It was pulling some of the great medical talent in the United States towards it. Fellow, uh, a fellow Lebanese physician, a surgeon named Michael DeBakey was pulled to Baylor College of Medicine McGovern was pulled uh, in to Baylor and the University of Texas and many others. So before I start with, uh, I have three stories, and I promise you we're going to pull them all together so you get a perspective of McGovern, Osler, 
and the Texas Medical Center and how all that pulled together. Just to give you kind of a pencil sketch, and then we'll go back and color it in on McGovern uh, and his life. He was born in 1921 in Washington, D.C. This book took about three years to put together while I was teaching, and I probably needed four or five, but you get so caught up in working through his materials that uh, I was able to do it in three years. And uh, in 1921, he was born at Walter Reed Hospital. His father was a surgeon um, at Walter Reed, and uh, then later a surgeon at Garfield Hospital in Washington, D.C., one of the old Civil War hospitals. It was eventually his father helped get it torn down as a member of the Washington, D.C. Medical Society. And McGovern, uh, as a child, would follow his father around Garfield and gravitated towards the children, the, the newborns, and he would become later a pediatrician. I found his first uh, high junior high school um, paper, and that was on medicine as a vocation. Uh, he would graduate from high school, Woodrow Wilson High School, in 1939, and he would go to Duke Medical School. It was uh, only nine years old at the time in 1939. And uh, his father and he had watched this Duke Medical School and the publicity around it. It was quickly becoming a place to go. And he would do postgraduate training at Yale. And then he would go uh, early faculty back to Duke for a little more residency training, a uh, trip to Europe. And then he would go on his first faculty position at George Washington University. Uh, he was a pediatrician, but he was very interested in allergy and, and immunology, which was an emerging field. The allergists in those days were called sneeze and wheeze doctors. At the AMA meetings, they would uh, be told their meetings were in the miscellaneous uh, section. Uh, and uh, so McGovern was determined that he wanted to be part of this uh, development of allergy and immunology as well. And by 1954, well, he, he'd gone to Tulane. He's actually uh, right there in, in that uniform. He's taking a vacation. He's a young professor at Tulane, and he's reading a magazine, Time magazine, about a new cancer hospital in Houston, Texas, called MD Anderson Cancer Center. Actually, then it was the MD Anderson Hospital and Tumor Institute. And uh, that caught his attention because George Washington and Tulane he was able to get into some allergy work, but he needed a bigger playing field, and this sounded like the perfect place for him. And then he went on to be a director, of, actually the chairman of the, of the board for the National Library of Medicine and started his own private allergy clinic in Houston with faculty appointments at, at uh, UT and, and Baylor. So we'll color those in in a second, but first of all, let's, let's look at uh, this medical center. Well, this is where I've worked for, for the last 40 years. This was taken uh, the year Dr. McGovern died. He died in 2007, and I was with him at John Seeley Hospital in Galveston when he died. So in the book, I start you out at his bedside, tell you his story, life through stories, and then I end the book back at his, his bedside. Uh, a few places you need to know. The medical center is huge. It uh, wasn't always that way. And in 1836, when Houston was founded, see, our history in the, in the States is like a, a blink in Oxford time. Uh, 1836, uh, we go all the way back to the beginning of our city. Most Houstonians that had money or wanted care, they would go to uh, the Mayo Clinic or they would go to Johns Hopkins, um, which Welch and Osler and, had uh, started. Uh, but this medical center started growing, and I'll kind of give you a picture of how it is. But I want you to at least know that there's the first hospital, Herman Hospital, 1925. Uh, we've had some uh, wealthy bachelors in our city's history who were great benefactors. And uh, I know you've had your uh, William Morris and John Radcliffe here. Well, we had a fellow named George Herman who left his money. He, was, uh, uh, he said he couldn't afford a wife even though he... He hit some oil in the early 1900s and was making $50,000 a week in, in royalties. But he, he loved uh, families that worked hard but were down and out on their health care, and he left his fortune, um, about a million point eight, uh, for a hospital for the city. And there was no medical center in 1925. Uh, but there was another bachelor, and his name was Monroe Anderson. If you've heard of MD Anderson Cancer Center, most of the people that work at Anderson don't know the D is for Monroe Dunaway Anderson. When I worked there, the uh, patients would say, only Dr. Anderson will touch me, and I had to explain he was a cotton broker. He didn't know even how to spell oncology. Uh, he made a fortune in cotton, came to Houston in 1907, and uh, with that fortune, uh, he left it in 1939 when he died to create a foundation 
and the trustees of his foundation, his two trusted attorneys, they figured out that they wanted to follow in the footsteps of George Herman and do something to add some hospitals to Houston, and they came up with kind of a Texas-sized idea that they would buy this forest that was right behind Herman Hospital. If you go back to when McGovern came to the medical center, you have to kind of strip away all the buildings, and then you get back to the original MD Anderson and the original Baylor College of Medicine and uh, George Herman's hospital there, which was expanding. Um, this is our attempt at the Bod Bodleian Library. We have a Texas Medical Center Library, which is part of the National Library of, of Medicine. But this is, uh, this is what McGovern would have seen when he came here. But it was like a magnet to be able to come to, to Houston and start his own private allergy practice, but also to join the faculty of the University of Texas and Baylor, and I'll, I'll explain how that, that came to be. And then I want to just take you one step further back in the history of our medical center. And then you can see it was just one forest, considered way too far from downtown Houston, all of four miles, to be of any value. And uh, Monroe Anderson's trustees were able to buy this 134 acres and uh, start their hospitals. Now, the way they started it was that the state of Texas wanted to have a cancer hospital. It was about 1941 and uh, they were going to put it in Dallas. Uh, but these fellows that had this land, and uh, $21 million is how much Monroe Anderson left in his foundation, they were able to convince the state of Texas they should move it to Houston, and uh, they would give them land, and they would give them some money, 500000 and they could uh, start their new cancer hospital right there, only if they would name it after their benefactor, Monroe Dunaway Anderson. And then they rushed off to Dallas because there was a medical school named Baylor up there, and they convinced them to uh, come down to uh, Houston. They would give them land and money, and they got Baylor. And then uh, soon all the other hospitals that could think of it wanted to come down and join this medical center, so we added and added Methodist, St. Luke's, Texas Children, and that sort of thing. So that gives you a little idea of how this medical center came to be. So then I come here in April, and I see this. Well, you have to go back over 500 years. I don't know how your historians do it, uh, but how impressive to see the history here and to uh, just walk the streets of, of your campus. And I just put this slide in to emphasize um, how modern and recent all of our history in Houston is and what a wonderful, rich history you have. And I probably looked a bit like that as I walked the streets um, um, back in April, just looking at um, all of these facilities. And then to step into Osler's home and I thank you for uh, the tours and being able, all of the Oslerians from America, when they got to walk into Osler's home, it was just an amazing moment. So now I'm kind of moving into that sign we saw on the front, Osler McGovern, and how on, on earth, what's the connection there? Um, and this, and Osler, when he came in, in 1905, and let me just move forward to, oh, I, as a historian, I only wish I could have uh, been sitting there so many years ago listening to the wonderful conversations and the students that came through there. Now, I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about Sir William Osler here in Oxford, but let me just give a couple of minutes sketch. I thought I might try to do something, find something that maybe you don't know about. It's pretty, pretty hard. Uh, you might not know that, you know, Osler uh, was born in Canada in uh, Bond's Head, uh, right out of Toronto. His father was an Anglican minister. His father's father had been a shipbuilder in Cornwall. And um, Osler's uh, father had been uh, in the Royal Navy, actually. And uh, he had had some accidents, and he swore that if he ever made it back to land, uh, he was going to go join the church. And that's what he did. He, became, he got back and uh, joined the church. On the way back to uh, England, uh, a ship stopped and asked if he wanted to join their little venture. And it was Charles Darwin and the Beetle, Beagle. And he said, no, I think I'll go back to England and get on some dry land. And his first assignment was to go to Bond's Head in Toronto, and that's where Osler was born in that parsonage with, with a rather large family. I believe it was eight, maybe nine. And uh, Osler, of course, uh, thought he would follow his father's footsteps into uh, the ministry, but he ran into Father Johnson in his preparation, and who, also, who happened to have a, a microscope. Osler was born in 1849. That was rather new in his years, as Michael Bliss says, to have a microscope in, in those days would be like the kids of the 70s, 60s having their first computer. It was very exciting, and Osler took to that microscope, collecting pond water and observing and drawing 
and even publishing his first pictures. He was a natural-born naturalist. And then when he met James Bovell, who was a physician in Toronto with uh, Father Johnson, uh, he was on that school's faculty, but he was also on the faculty of the medical school in Toronto. Bovell had a large library. Osler would even board with him and live in there and have access to that library. And he quickly changed his plans to go into medicine and then went on to Montreal, where there were better facilities. And then from Montreal, uh, he eventually got a faculty position. He had to go to Europe and see Guy's Hospital and other things to complete his education. Came back. One of the most popular young professors at McGill. The students loved him. He bought microscopes out of his own pockets. And I'm, I'm telling you this because you'll find out McGovern sort of doing the same things in the Texas Medical Center when we were getting started. And um, then Osler would be uh, uh, asked eventually if he wanted to come to Philadelphia and join Penn, and he had to flip a coin to do that. And he flipped a coin, and it came up to go to Philadelphia, so he ran off to telegraph uh, them that he was coming, but he didn't have any money in his pocket when he got there because he had left his coin back at home. So I guess uh, he went back home and got his coin. Uh, and he went to Philadelphia, and everyone in McGill followed him to the train stations. Sorry to see him leave, and then he did the same thing at Penn. He became one of the most popular professors. He would do every autopsy he could get his hands on. He wanted to observe and see the same sort of thing he'd been doing with that pond water. Um, there were so few treatments back then that to observe disease and to understand the natural history and to get in there and do those autopsies um, was something that he was building and understanding of medicine, and of course that would help him when he wrote his book, Principles and Practice of, of Medicine in 1893, but before he did that, uh, he had to go to Johns Hopkins. And that was a hard job not to accept to go to Johns Hopkins, because that was where we really changed medical education in the United States. Medical education was really pretty crummy in the United States before Johns Hopkins. Of course we had Harvard, and we had some good schools but it was with Johns Hopkins, uh, the Fab Four chairman they hired. You know, you have the Fab Four, the Beatles from London. Johns Hopkins, when it began its medical school, had the Fab Four in terms of uh, William Welch and, and William Osler and Halstead, the great surgeon, and um, um, leaving one out, but Kelly. Kelly, Kelly the obstetrician who... Uh, was a wonderful surgeon and, and did an outstanding book. And the four of them started what was a major, ex not an experiment, but a major revolution in American medical education where they would bring in the German model of research and they would bring in high standards for admission. Uh, Welch turned to Osler and said, I'm glad we got in as professors. We probably wouldn't have gotten in as students. Uh, that's how... Uh, revolutionary Johns Hopkins was, and they also were accepting women because they had to uh, find an extra $500,000 because uh, uh, the uh, school had been planned, but they had been run out of money because the B&O Railroad, which was the source of money, um, was having some financial difficulties. And uh, some of the young women of the area uh, who were heirs to some of this money. They raised the money and uh, on the grounds that women would be accepted. So Osler was quite the name. And uh, Osler came, obviously, in 1905 to Oxford as the Regis professor. I think he was about worn out and worn down by the time he got here. His wife, he had married uh, Grace Revere um, back in his Philadelphia days. And she said, uh, uh, you better go, uh, rather you go than in a pine box uh, because he was literally wearing himself thin and he came to Oxford. Um, he also wrote Principles and Practices, I mentioned, which was the great textbook of his time. And tomorrow morning I'm going to do a talk uh, for students and we're going to really talk about that revolution in, in American medical education that Osler and Welch and others um, started. But in 1902, you know, uh, um, we had uh, the Rhodes Scholarships were started with the uh, fortune that was left behind to start that here at Oxford. And by 1913, an American arrived as an Oxford scholar. This was Wilbert Davison. And this is that dot that connects Osler to McGovern. Wilbert Davison uh, came. He was uh, born in uh, Michigan. His father was a Methodist minister. And... Uh, 
He had come as a Rhodes Scholar in 1913. He had knocked on Osler's door. He wanted to cut a year off of his training here at Oxford. Osler said, uh, he said, well, it's a silly idea, but come on in and have tea with Grace over at 13 Northern Garden. And then uh, he came to understand through listening to Osler what a wonderful man this was and what a brilliant uh, teacher he had. And uh, Davison would pick up everything from Osler about the humanities, the importance of the art and the science. Um, he was also on the rowing team. I don't know if you knew that. I think Oxford did very well this year in, in rowing. And uh, Wilbur Davison was a stout fellow. You can sort of tell. Quite a rower uh, and quite brilliant. Um, and he goes back. Osler says he came in 1913. He leaves in 1916. Osler said, go back and finish your medical degree which medical school would you like to go to? And Davison was very smart. He said, I think I'd like to go to Johns Hopkins. And, of course, a note from uh, of Osler is like a hall pass to anywhere. And so, of course, William Welch took in uh, John Davison, and he finished his medical degree and actually became an assistant dean, and he, joined, he was a pediatrician. So he, he joined the pediatrics faculty of John Howland, the famous uh, pediatrician that had come along at uh, Hopkins, and Davison heard about this new school that was going to get started down in uh, North Carolina called Duke, and he was kind of jealous. I found all of his papers. He was kind of jealous that uh, someone was going to get that job. He was only 30 30 years old, and he thought he would never get that job, Uh, but he was in the right place. He was there with William Welch at Johns Hopkins. He was a young pediatrician working for the great John Hallen, and... uh, the president came down, few, President Few came down and asked Welch, could I talk with this Davison fellow? And suddenly Davison realized he was getting offered the job to start Duke Medical School. And the year was 1930 when they opened uh, Duke Medical School. And Davison took with him everything he learned from Osler. Uh, he believed with his heart and soul uh, everything about Osler's approach. He started Duke first by building a library. Uh, he started Duke by recruiting a chairman, just as Johns Hopkins had done. Uh, he recruited an internal medicine chair, and then the two of them recruited the next chair, and then the next chair. The average age of the Duke chairs was 34 years old. The average age of that Fab Four uh, Johns Hopkins chairman was 34. Uh, so basically, Davison took everything he had learned from, from uh, Osler and brought it to Duke, and he carried that on, and so here we have, if you remember, John McGovern is following his father around the hospital. He's a teenager. He's writing his first paper, research paper, and uh, he's saying to himself, what's this Duke Medical School I'm, I'm reading about? And as he graduated from high school, he wanted to go to Duke. He went there as an undergraduate, 1939, September, uh, but his eye was on, how can I get into that medical school? How can I get over there? And we're going to talk a little bit about how that comes to be. Davison uh, became the mentor uh, to, to McGovern because he did finally get over the hill to the medical school. He finished uh, three years of his undergraduate work at Duke, and they had a deal going in those days. You know, these are the days right before World War II. So everything was on an accelerated plan. And Davison had set up Duke. So you could be admitted to their medical school without finishing your undergraduate. Davison didn't want you wasting a fourth year if you had done all the work and you seemed to be ready and qualified. Uh, He would take you in, and then if you excelled in research while you were working on your medical degree, you had the chance that you could get uh, a bachelor's of science degree and a medical degree at your graduation. And that's exactly what McGovern did uh, he put everything he had as a medical student into uh, the Borden Prize. He, was, he won the Borden Prize, the first Borden Prize, which was a big prize back then for medical students in research. Um, Davison uh, interviewed McGovern. McGovern didn't know he was being interviewed. He spent an hour, and Davison, for the first time, Os- McGovern told me, I heard the name Osler. I had no idea who William Osler was. But when I finished that hour interview, I knew everything about Osler. I knew I wanted to be a physician like Osler, and I knew I wanted to be at Duke. And at the end of that hour, Davison said, well, you're accepted. Back then, all you needed was the dean to talk to you and accept you. And uh, McGovern was needless, obviously thrilled. 
he took to Madison, the passion of Madison, and I was able to go through all of his letters home in the, in the early 40s uh, with the starting out, I just love this Madison. He was known by the students to always be about two steps behind Davison, always with a book about Osler. I mean, he just really took to it, and he wanted to be, obviously, a pediatrician because Davison was a pediatrician. McGovern's father, the surgeon, would, uh, turns out, very interesting to, to find out. McGovern had never shared the story. As McGovern graduated in 1945 from Duke, and he got both of those degrees, his undergraduate Duke degree and his medical degree and the Borden Prize, um, his father had come down, and his father had just announced that he was leaving medicine because he had tuberculosis and was ill. And it was uh, interesting for a historian, an interesting switch that you have the father, the son rising and the father fading. His father never would get back into medicine. He would get hepatitis and things would go downhill. This would be a huge drag on McGovern as he finished medical school and was doing those difficult years of internship um, at Yale. And uh, that's why he picked Yale, because he wanted to be closer to Washington where he could have quicker access to be home and, and check on his dad. When his father finally did die at a very young age, I think he was 51, um, Davison would become the second father for McGovern, literally. Every, I have boxes of letters. Every plan and idea McGovern had about his career, he would share with Davison, and Davison would share with uh, his ideas and thoughts uh, with McGovern. And as McGovern arrived in the medical center and started his own allergy clinic, which became the world's largest privately owned allergy clinic, uh, he also joined Baylor where he started uh, residency programs in allergy and immunology and he joined the University of Texas where he was involved in um, a, a school call we had called the Postgraduate School of Medicine and, uh, and now it's called the, um, our Biomedical Science School where we're teaching basic sciences to work in a clinical environment and the government was very involved in a lot of continuing education and everything he did, he would talk about Davison and somehow bring Osler into what he was doing. Now, this is how he looked at the peak of his career in the early 70s. He was now the president of the uh, National, the College of Allergists. Uh, and that's a very pivotal year for allergies because that is when major discoveries were made that moved the science of immunology out of the labs and more into the clinics. And uh, he was highly networked. He was the editor of multiple um, journals in the field. He was the president of one of the largest national organizations. He was running that program he had started at Baylor where all of these pediatricians from all over the country wanted to come and train in immunology and allergy, and they wanted to come and train with McGovern. He had his hand in the full pulse of the field, and uh, he could also pick handpicked the best to stay with him as his associates at his private allergy clinic. He also helped Texas Children's Hospital start their allergy clinic because of his Baylor appointment. Um, Baylor had um, their faculty was overseeing the clinics of Texas Children's and no one but McGovern knew how to start an allergy clinic so the chairman at Baylor at that time, Russell Blattner, said why don't you go over to Texas Children's and McGovern went over there and started an allergy clinic that became the busiest service of Texas Children's. And McGovern donated his own supplies from his private clinic down the street uh, to keep that running for 18 years. It became the biggest service. And then they went into uh, um, all of that evolved into David the Bubble Boy and then AIDS and all sorts of high-level immunology needs. So uh, McGovern's story in terms of allergy extends well beyond his, his private clinic. Now, how did I get to know him? Well, I had come to the UT Medical School. You need to know there's two University of Texases in the uh, medical center. The University of Texas main campus in Austin has 15 uh, campuses around the state and six health component campuses. And uh, MD Anderson is obviously one of those. And our UT Health Science Center is one of the others. And then there's UTMB in Galveston. There's UT Southwestern in Dallas. There's a UT in San Antonio. There's actually a small one in Tyler, Texas, which is in East Texas. Those six health components, um, McGovern ended up with a faculty appointment at every one of our six schools. We are the largest of the health science centers. That's medicine, public health, dentistry, 
And it wasn't just because it was an honorary appointment. It was because he was involved teaching and he was involved doing books and publications with the faculty. He was just interested in all areas. Very holistic in his view, just like Osler would have been, that the medical care is a team approach. We need to bring public health medicine together. He saw everything horizontally, not just vertically. And I came as an assistant dean to the medical school. I wanted to teach. I'd been at Anderson collecting stories and doing uh, faculty work with large grants. Uh, but I wanted to get back and do more writing, and it was perfect time to do a 30-year history of our school. It was about 1995, and our 30th anniversary was going to be in 2000. And I did not know McGovern, but someone said, you should approach him because he likes writing, he likes history, and write a very simple letter and tell him you're going to donate all your writing time, you're going to do this outside of work, and you're going to do this for your school as a gift. And that letter worked because he sent me a small little check so I could start interviewing all of our living deans. We had most every dean from 1970 was still alive. Most of, many of them, over half, have now since died, so those videotaped archives are very valuable to our school. And I started writing after about six months, and I sent him the first chapter. Still hadn't met him, and uh, he calls me, and my assistant says, it sounds very urgent, and I was a little bit nervous, but he said, I love what you're doing. Can I be co-author? And I thought, well, this can't hurt. And uh, I said, yes, you can be co-author. And the next thing I know, every day at 4, he's calling me to come over to his place, which is just down the street uh, in a very high-rise, beautiful high-rise, and uh, with a beautiful window overlooking the entire medical center. It's like the medical center had been placed right (laughs) below him. And at night, it's just all glittering and busy with activity. And I would sit up there, and he would tell me stories of the history of Duke and the history of... He would hand me an Osler book every time I left. I didn't know why, but I finally started reading them, and I realized why. He was mentoring me, changed my career as I moved into medical history and Oslerian, the art and the science and and programs. But anyway, we became fast friends and colleagues for the rest of his life, and um, I learned a great deal. It was sort of like I was associate dean at day, and I was attending McGovern University at night. That's sort of the way it was. And he could be very difficult. He would say, uh, I'm writing a foreword for the Hinohara book, uh, Annotations, and I need your help, and I need to cut a little here. And I would scratch a letter or word, and he would give me a 30-minute lecture of why I shouldn't have taken that word out. So I was learning quite a bit from him. He had an amazing memory in his 70s, and even in his 80s. He died one day before his 86th birthday. So now it's time to do a biography about him, and we're going to color in a little more of his life. Uh, So I had not done a biography. I was a little nervous. I'd been writing for 40 years. I mean, I'd written for Walter Cronkite. I'd written for every president in the medical center. But a biography was a new thing. I talked to Michael Bliss, and he said when he did his first biography on banning uh, and insulin, uh, he was a little nervous when he made that shift. It was kind of difficult for him. Well, that wasn't encouraging to me. Michael Bliss is a great writer, and uh, he's also done Osler and Cushing books. So I turned to another Southerner, Mark Twain, Samuel Clements, and he says you can't do a biography. He says you can only uh, look at the, the clothes and buttons of the man. You can't really write. Well, I don't agree. I think a biographer's job is to, is to distill and to look at the whole life. And in my case, I'm a writer that does stories. McGovern and I love doing stories every night. Uh, and so I wanted to do his book as stories, and I felt I could, could do it. But I thought, well, for this talk, let's look at the clothes and buttons of the man through his life and learn a little more about him to color in. So this is McGovern growing up in Washington, D.C. He's about five there. He's holding a baseball, because I didn't mention his dad was not only a surgeon at Walter Reed, he was quite a baseball player uh, in his college team in New York, Fortum, I think, and uh, McGovern used to tell me he was semi-pro. I'm not sure about that, but that's what McGovern believed. But I think McGovern inherited that eye, hand-eye co- coordination. And McGovern uh, and his father and his grandfather, who also lived in Washington, you're going to see a picture of him, uh, they loved to go to baseball games. And that's what McGovern grew up in apartments off of Connecticut, uh, playing baseball with his friends. And I was able to find some recollections from early childhood friends about what he was like and put those in the book. Here's a picture I love of him and his father. 
he was the only son. I found a letter um, that I put in the book when he was uh, just two weeks old in 1921. His father, with a beautiful handwriting on American Red Cross stationery, wrote uh, a letter to my little Jack. And it's a wonderful letter. It's kind of a social contract of we will love you and we expect you to to love us and do for others. And uh, I think at the end of the book, I, f- I felt like he had really fulfilled that that contract. Um, his dad had married Lottie Brown, and when he was in Washington, he had been. At, I mentioned he'd been at Walter Reed and then at Garfield. His dad was very involved in the D.C. Uh, Medical Society, involved in getting uh, Garfield and other Civil War hospitals torn down, and, and a large central D.C. health system built. And I think McGovern would see those awards and see his father's work in that area, and it was very much like what Osler was preaching to Davison. It's not just about being the best professional you can be, but it's about your profession as well. That's why Osler was so involved in so many professional organizations. If he wasn't belonging to, if he wasn't a member, if he hadn't created them, and he would create them. Involved uh, and so, and McGovern came up watching his father exemplify that kind of attitude. And as I mentioned, it was the Depression years. His father would bring home chickens and vegetables. Uh, employees were, people were losing their jobs in the Great Depression. It was always over your head. And I should mention, as a, as a young boy, he would hear the stories of his grandparents, obviously with a name like McGovern. They were from Ireland, and his grandparents had come over with the Great Potato Famine, ended up in D.C., and he would hear the stories of that, uh, and it would probably scare him. And at the same time, in Washington, D.C., we had the bonus marches, and the city was on fire at times because of the World War I vets that were protesting, and then they were, it, it was quite a mess. Um, and I put that in the book. And then uh, we had the Great Depression coming along at the same time. So the kids of that generation, they learned it, uh, that uh, money's hard to earn and it's much easier to lose. And... Uh, he kind of grew up in that environment. And I put this picture in here because to remind you, when he did get out of uh, high school in 1939, he went straight to Duke, but it was the pre-war years, so they were all in, in a military situation where they didn't know for sure when they would get called. I have letters from Duke saying, I can't guarantee you can have a residency next year because you may all be called. And then I get a letter from Davison to McGovern uh, as he's just graduated, I got the letter. You're not going to be doing a residency here. You're going to have to go serve. And McGovern would end up in Richmond, Virginia, uh, working with paraplegic soldiers. Um, and uh, there's wonderful stories about his his work there. Uh, what can I say about uh, at Duke? That uh, was accelerated uh, time. The way Davison set the, the medical school up was that. Uh, he, like Osler, thought the wards were where you learned medicine. And so he wanted you to find your areas of interest, and he wanted you to be in the wards and focus on those areas. He didn't want you focusing on areas that you weren't so interested in, and it sounded on the surface like, well, maybe this would be easy way to go through medical school. It was actually very hard. They had to cram a lot into a short amount of time, and they had to think on their feet, and they had to be on their feet. And the letters home to his parents were just amazing as he... He would, they would be his journals of how much he loved it and but how hard it was and how much work he was putting into it. And I found a very telling letter that he says, I'm not as smart as my roommate. He seems to do very well on every test and not study very hard, but I will work twice as hard of him and stay up with him. And that was kind of McGovern's <laughs> philosophy. He wasn't the smartest in his class. He was very smart, but he wasn't the brilliant one that never had to study. But he was willing to work as hard as it took. And as I mentioned, he went on, uh, did residency at Yale he, uh, with Grover uh, Parks, and then he, he, went to, uh, uh, he, he went to George Washington in Washington, D.C. His father was dying. He eventually was writing Davison that I need to get out of here. They're not supporting me enough. I want to do more research. I want to do allergy. And Davison writes him a letter and says, you ought to go look at New Orleans. He named a few people. They're very interested in allergy. They're doing some research down there. It might be a good opportunity. So he went to New Orleans as an assistant professor. Charity hospital, overflowing, busy, um, he took it all in. He became the student's favorite. He was editing magazines and journals at 
Tulane. He didn't mind the busyness of Charity Hospital. He was working with starting uh, allergy clinics in the area and uh, for the hospital. And also he was uh, teaching, became a very popular teacher, and uh, found letters from some of his students that he was always sharing Osler and stories of Osler. And uh, this is that one vacation I mentioned he took. And uh, he's on a ship. And uh, it was a pretty easy job. So typical vacation for, for McGovern is he's going outside and collecting pollen because he's doing his own research while he's, he's on his vacation. His medical duties on the ship were mostly a little bit of seasickness and sunburns, he said. When he got to Baylor, uh, he was doing research. And as I mentioned, he started those training programs, uh, model programs that are still used in the medical center and, and residency training in allergy and immunology. And, uh, and as I mentioned, he started the clinic over at Baylor. And then how did he get to MD Anderson? Well, the key to that is there's another player. Davison had another professor on the pediatrics faculty named Grant Taylor. And Grant Taylor was hired by Lee Clark as the first chairman of pediatrics at that new Pink Palace of Healing, M.D. Anderson, that was mentioned in Time magazine. And Grant Taylor was a favorite of McGovern's as well as Davison, and Grant Taylor wrote McGovern, who was in New Orleans, and he said, you might want to think about coming over to this medical center. I can get you appointments at Baylor and UT. You can start your own allergy practice, and Houston might be a pretty good place to start an allergy business. And McGovern thought about it for a while. He did a lot of research, typical McGovern, talked to all of his network, all of his friends, and made the decision to come in 1954. And this is him in the early days at Baylor. And with Grant Taylor, he was over there, as I mentioned, doing continuing education and other, other work. Now here's another set of clothes. He's a fisherman. Now he and I are, I'm a fisherman, so I have to tell you, many a night we were telling fishing stories. And I put in the book one of my stories where I had caught this big speckled trout near his home in Galveston. He had a beach home as well where he had spent his last 10 years uh, as his health failed. And I was bragging on this big fish I caught and asked him if he'd ever caught one that big. And he said, well, I caught one two pounds smaller, but the taxidermist building burned down and I never got it. I felt horrible. I asked his wife, Kathy McGovern, um, could I bring him this fish I had mounted on my wall? And, and so for the last uh, eight years of his life, this fish was on his wall in his study. And um, I put in the book, and I'll tell you the story. The, the last time I was with him, he, we would tell stories, and he was getting to where I would have to fill in the blanks because he could no longer tell a full story. But he loved it because he could go through a whole story. So he would even forget Wilbert Davison's name, and I would just say Wilbert, and he would carry on. And, and, uh, but this last time, he couldn't remember anything. In fact, he asked me if I was from Baylor. And I knew at this point, you know, this is very sad, and he's so weak. And I stood up to leave, and I was helping him up. And he grabs my arm real tight, and he says, see that fish up there? He said, uh, since I've been losing my memory, I get to tell people I caught it myself. <laughs> so... Uh, now, this picture I put in here, not just because to show that he had a little bit of balance in his life, not as much as he probably needed, because you're going to find out he's doing a lot of other good things. Uh, but this is pictures taken by his new bride, Kathy McGovern. It's 1961. They're down in Key West. And uh, she took this picture on their honeymoon. And uh, they love fishing together. That's why they had a beach house, Galveston, 60 miles south of Houston, and uh, they loved the beach. The, the house that the final one he lived in was their eighth home down in the Galveston area. And they loved to fish together. And I love to fish, but my wife won't go fishing with me. So I used to always remind her, Kathy McGovern fishes with her husband. <laughs> Kathy McGovern now runs the foundation since he passed away in 2007. Um, so here's another uh, set of clothes, and this is the one we're all used to seeing, at, at least in the medical center, teaching residents with patients, and uh, this is at his own allergy clinic, which became the largest in the world, and he eventually, when he retired in 1986, he sold it to two of his associates, and they were two individuals who had come in those early days to train with him. They wanted to learn allergy and immunology, 
And then he said, you're so good, I want to keep you. And he actually went and hunted them down when they'd gone back to their practices and said, you need to come back to Houston, you can join my practice. Uh, two of them uh, bought his practice when he retired, uh, and they bought the name the McGovern Allergy Clinic, and we still have a McGovern Allergy Clinic in Houston. Uh, they didn't buy the building. He wouldn't sell them the building and the land. Um, he sold that to another fellow named Mavis Kelsey, who has a large uh, health care center in the shadows of the medical center. Now, here's a set of clothes I want to talk about. The most asked about question is, well, how did he make this fortune? Because I've left this part out of the story. In 1961, as he was fishing on his honeymoon, he also did something a few months earlier. He took $10,000 and started a foundation. And uh, with that foundation, he grew it into um, $187 million is what their foundation has right now. Uh, And he was... As we were talking about earlier, he was sort of like uh, Osler and, and John Radcliffe together. Or in, in the States, I would say he was Donald Trump by night, and he was Sir William Osler by day. Um, it was amazing. There's no other physician in Houston that had the sense of investment and timing, understanding of the growth of Houston. He came at the right time. He bought real estate. He invested in the stock market. I was able to spend a lot of time with the fellow that was his right hand on investments, who's now passed away. He had a stroke in the middle of this project. Uh, fortunately, I got two days of interviews. I spent two days with him at his home. Um, and he said that eventually the Wall Street firms were calling Houston to find out what McGovern was doing today. Um, that's how good he was. He put the most he could put in every year into his foundation. He would hold his property for an end user. That means you hold it for 30, 40 years till someone has to have it. So, for example, he buys land because he hears a new dome stadium might be happening in Houston down south. So he goes and buys land, and sure enough, that's where they decide to put it. He holds that land until 40 years later when they build a new football stadium, and they have to have that land for their parking lot, and then he sells it by the square foot. And all of that went into his foundation. What I want to emphasize is he was doing this because he wanted to give that money back. Uh, I think it was just he knew that in retirement he wanted to have something that he could give back. And uh, this was something he could do, and he seemed to be very good at it, and he was. So I want to talk a little bit about putting the book together. I'll just go kind of quickly. Uh, Fortunately, we have a research center and archives in the medical center. Thanks to McGovern. McGovern became the curator of our medical library rare books because he donated all of his books, much as Osler donated his books, many of them in McGill. And just as Cushing donated his books, and just as Davison donated his books, um, they all follow in the same line. And McGovern uh, was running the, the board of the National Library of Medicine, and he was the curator of rare books, uh, donating all of his books, and he f- helped them get a historical research center started. Thank goodness he did, because we have all the voices there. If you listen hard enough, you can hear the voices of Herman, and you can hear the voices of Monroe Anderson and others. Dr. Cooley, Denton Cooley, I worked with for two years, just put all of his papers in these archives. So I go to the archives, and I ask the archivist, well, which of these are McGovern's, thinking there's going to be about eight or ten boxes? And he sweeps his arm, as far as you can see down one entire row there, and says, uh, these are all McGovern's. It's, it's actually in the middle row, all the way down. It was 300 boxes. These boxes are stacked too deep, all cataloged and numbered. And so how do you get started? I kind of asked this question of my students because how do you start on a project like this? And the first thing you do is you get busy and you start looking through these boxes. And, of course, I honed in on the letters from his family, the early letters from his grandparents, and uh, found a picture in the back uh, of him. His, his staff had given him in 1976. I hung that up there so he'd be looking over me. I got Osler watching over me, and I got a little bit of the medical center history going. I started a database. I didn't know what else to do. I got to keep track of everything I find of interest. I scanned things. Fortunately, I was allowed to have an office right there. And in these boxes, I found the stories come alive that he had told me those nights that we sat together. Because after we worked on books, like Hinahara's book, 
if he was in a good mood, I could get him off to the side, put a pillow under him, and he would start telling me stories of growing up in D.C. He would tell me the stories of his Granny Brown. They lived in D.C., and he would ride a bus from his house off Connecticut over to the farmhouse where his Granny Brown, he loved his Granny Brown. She was pure German, 100% German. He was very proud of that. And she had married George Brown, and George Brown had a brother, and he married a Hayes, and so then I figure out that they had a daughter named Helen Hayes. So Helen Hayes was his second cousin. And this is important because if you go back to that farmhouse, he told me the story one night of got over to Granny Brown's with his grandfather, and he's sitting on that porch, and Helen Hayes, who's 15 years older than him, she's now made it in theater. She's becoming a very big name. She pulls up in a yellow convertible. He's like eight or nine years old. She jumps out, immediately walks up to him, grabs him, and says, where's my young cousin Jack I've heard so much about? I think that changed him in many ways because I think he understood when he saw his cousin, who was a big deal, that she had worked hard and focused in her craft and had was accumulating fame and a little bit of power, and she was accumulating wealth. She would eventually start a foundation for the arts. And you can see where he followed. He would start a foundation for the medical arts and especially the humanities and the Osler-like programs. So this was a very significant event that uh, I found... Um, and I actually went to the Looking for That Farmhouse. It's a CVS pharmacy uh, now in the middle of Washington, D.C., off Georgia Avenue. I found his report cards. Like Osler, he had some very bad grades in, in uh, cooperation. <laughs> Osler got uh, kicked out of his school at Dundas uh, for smoking out the, the teacher. They put things in the stove and smoked her out and ended up getting jailed. <laughs> Um, so Osler had a, a streak like that, and there was McGovern. This is his elementary school right around the corner. I found the first bank book. He told me he had $7, and Granny Brown told him to put it in the bank. He was about nine years old. Well, this is, this is uh, 1929. He was eight years old. And uh, he said, I remember the night he told me this. He was in his early 80s. He says, I asked her, why would I give a bank my money? And she said, well, they'll keep your money safe. And they'll pay you interest. And he said, what is interest? And when she told him, he was 80 years old, and you could see these light bulbs still going <laughs> off. If I have $7, what if I had $70? What if I had $700? Um, so maybe his whole foundation started right here. Fortunately for Washington, D.C., banks did not really fail. Most banks did not. Uh, his bank did not because this bank book goes on a few years past 19. 29. The story is his father gave a friend $100 because his bank was failing, hoping that would help, and the bank failed. So his father's investment history was not quite as good. So I looked at some others of what they had to say. You've got to marinate your head if you're going to do a biography. And uh, that's really what happened uh, with me. Uh, the archivist would see me at lunch, and he'd say, I'd say, why are you watching your watch? And he would say, to see if you can go 30 seconds without saying McGovern. You just live inside this world of McGovern. I had to go to Washington, D.C. and walk the streets. This is the house. When they finally moved out of an apartment, and when he was 14, uh, they moved to this home on Cumberland Street, and there's the home um, just a couple, few years ago. Hadn't changed much other than the trees. This is right at the base of Fort Reno where Woodrow Wilson High School was built, and uh, I had to sit there in front of that house and kind of envision him. That must have been a palace compared to living in a two-bedroom apartment where he grew up. But his father was moving up in the medical society. He was moving up as chief of uh, the clinical staff at Garfield. And, and uh, families were moving into these new suburbs. And they were also demanding better schools. This was happening all over the country. And the better schools came along. So I have a whole section where I researched the schools of D.C., back in his days, and he was born at the right time and the right place because D.C. had terrible public schools, and then they said, the, the parents and the, the community said, we're going to get a new superintendent, and we want a whole new school system, and just as McGovern's ready for junior high and high school, he has brand new high schools, new curriculum, a Harvard-trained um, superintendent from Boston who rebuilt the D.C., and this is junior high, Alice Steele, junior high. Alice Steele was a math science 
fac uh, teacher, so he was in a junior high. We had a very strong math and science background. This is Woodrow Wilson High School. I figured out another fellow went to this high school and graduated nine years after McGovern. McGovern graduated in 1939, and that other fellow was Warren Buffett. Uh, he went to Woodrow. Remember Warren Buffett, if, if you know his history, his dad was elected to Congress from Omaha, and so for a few years he lived just a few blocks away from McGovern. When I found that out, I went in the high school and drank out of the water fountain. I thought, maybe there's something in the water. I bought a lottery ticket, but nothing happened. So here's what Walter Isaacson has to say. When you write biographies, whether it's about Ben Franklin or Einstein, uh, you discover something amazing. They are human. And I discovered so much about Wilbert Davison in these boxes. This is that famous catalog box that just showed up one day. The archivist said, oh, we found another box full of treasures. Uh, and I always ask my students, what are we going to do as biographers when all we have are a few emails and tweets and a few uh, Facebook documents? Uh, here we have from Wilbur Davison rich letters where he's talking to McGovern about, that reminds me of the time I was in Sheraton's lab. And that reminds me of the time Sir William told me to go do this. And, and we just don't have that anymore, and we're fortunate that these treasures have... Uh, Remained. It took me years to work Clint Eastwood into a presentation. <laughs> but uh, here's what he had to say. You don't know what was going on in a person's mind. You just know what was going on in the minds of people around them. And that's very true. So I needed to go and talk to everyone I could find that had worked with McGovern that was still alive. I, I found this is his first clinic when he came in 54. He bought an old practice that the physician, the, the early allergist, was dying. The, the grounds, the conditions were that the widow would be able to live in the garage apartment behind, and McGovern took good care of her uh, for a number of years, but he outgrew that, and eventually he bought his own property. Um, as I mentioned, he was Donald Trump by night, so after work, he would be driving around with his new bride. In fact, Kathy McGovern said, I was his driver, uh, and he would look for properties he could buy in the area of the medical center and piece together. And over time, he pieced together large blocks of property. And, of course, he never sold them until an end user came along. This is a big piece of property he bought near the medical center. And he was able to build his um, allergy clinic on, uh, which is now sold. So I took my daughter. Uh, I have three daughters. One is here today, but she'll tell you she's not this daughter. This, my daughter is five, was here in April. She's now 12. I took her down to see him. This is just a year before he died. And I got worried on the way down that this was a big mistake. You know, she's energetic. She's going to run around the house. Uh, as soon as she arrived, he had the biggest smile on his face. Uh, she was in his lap. He offered her candy out of a big bowl, and she took two handfuls, and he just laughed because that's what he probably would have done if you don't put parameters on how much you can have. And uh, eventually, he didn't want to see me anymore. He just wanted me to bring her down. Uh, but I put this picture in here because uh, he dies a year later. And uh, as I'm standing there over him, uh, he's, he's going to die within the next uh, hour or two. I would think back to stories like this, the joy of the young and the old together, how much he loved kids, never had kids of his own. Uh, and as a businessman, he would drive his people crazy in terms of... Uh, calling stockbrokers on Christmas morning, wondering why they weren't working on his portfolio, uh, things like that. He finally found uh, one broker, a woman. She's still the foundation's broker. Um, and uh, she could work with him, and uh, they did very well. He called all his shots on his, his real estate deals and on his stocks. Uh, and the, the poor fellow that uh, was his right hand had to provide him a portfolio every Sunday of everything, and this was huge. And he would go through it, and in a little black book, he would write what he was going to do, and then he would call in the orders for what he wanted to do with his stocks. Um, and I haven't found the black book. I'm told the attorneys for the foundation had once asked him if they could have it to put in the computer. He didn't want any part of that. It was all done by, by notes. And then in 2007, he died. I was fortunate I got a call that day, and I turned my car and went straight to Galveston and got there in time to be with him. And... Uh, Two of us Solarians got to speak at his event, me and Jack Stobo from UT Medical Branch at the time. Now, I'm not competitive, but I put my book up against... Uh, 
Cushing, Cushing's uh, biography of Usler. And uh, mine wasn't quite as thick, but the point here is, I think, is that biographies can be very different. This is a collection of stories about his life, and I walk you through his life through the stories. Cushing did his in a very different way, and you can even find in Davison's correspondence where he'd actually walk through the room where Cushing was putting Osler's biography together, and he saw how he was doing it with all the boxes year by year, all the way around the room, and he kind of had a formula for how many boxes he could do, how, much, how many weeks a, a year of Osler's life would take. Um, this was a very different process, but I did find this quote from Emerson that great geniuses have the shortest biographies, but then his can't be right because they were both geniuses in their own way, as was Davidson. So I hope I've kind of connected the three. You get a little feel for uh, what a powerful influence uh, Osler was on Davison and Davison on McGovern and, and the legacy that they all have left behind. And I saw this piece of art in April down on the sidewalk on campus, and that, that fellow is down there today doing another one. And it made me think of legacies because you could just shake this blanket and it would all be gone. I think Osler, Davison, and McGovern were all thinking about the permanence of what they could leave behind. And certainly we can see it in Osler and, and the traditions and all of the people like Davison he trained that went back and done so much in this country in medicine. And, and McGovern who uh, saved every letter he ever had and he built his foundation which he continues to, to give back. Um, so while McGovern has many buildings and programs and faculty endowments that are concrete. Uh, he's done so much for students, and I just want to mention in Houston, he started, he helped us start a uh, McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics where I teach, and down in Galveston many years ago, he started one of the first humanities programs and one of the best in the country with uh, Jack Burns, and uh, we're celebrating our 10th year, and I can only think if McGovern could be here, how proud he might be, and uh, how much he would love to go sit in Osler's home one more time. Thank you very much. Great.